0: Alright, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Familiar story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. The purpose of Jesus' parables are to teach us the kingdom. As a matter of fact, all of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels can be really summed up by his initial announcement in the Gospel of Mark when he comes announcing this news that the kingdom of heaven is near, therefore repent ...and believe the good news. That's really the summary of everything that Jesus teaches. And one tool that Jesus often employs to teach is parables. And these parables, these stories, these illustrations that he gives us... ...are all teaching us what the kingdom of God is like. This kingdom that we will in the future experience in its fullness... ...is breaking into the present in Jesus. That future thing is becoming realized in the present through Jesus... ...and now by his spirit... And it's so different. We could say it's so apocalyptic. It's so otherworldly that Jesus gives us these helpful illustrations so that we can understand what the kingdom of God is like because the kingdom of God often feels so upside down to our experience. It's not what we're used to. It's not along the lines of human logic. The kingdom works differently. And so Jesus uses these parables. And I bet if you've spent any time in church, you're familiar with this one this parable of the Good Samaritan, but it's what God put on my heart. I don't know what your custom is in the reading of God's word, but I would love it if you're able, if you could stand to your feet as I read God's word, uh, Luke 10, verse 25, and I'll read it here. It says, "'On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. "'Teacher,' he asked, "'what must I do to inherit eternal life?' What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. Go and do likewise. Lord, we pray that your spirit would bring to us this word and make it applied in our hearts so that it becomes real in our actions. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can take your seats. Thank you for standing with me. So our passage here starts, oh, I, I didn't mention this and I should. I have three children. I can't go on without mentioning it to you. So I have a 14-year-old son named Levi, a 12-year-old daughter named Jade, and a 5-year-old named Isla. And I tell everyone, you can guess which one was the surprise. (laughs) One way younger than the others. Um, And they're so much part of our lives and ministry and mission in Aliquippus, so I just wanted to mention them. Um, Our passage today begins with this expert in the law coming to Jesus and asking him a question not with pure intention... He's probably trying to get Jesus to say something heretical. He's trying to test Jesus. He's trying to trap him in his words. And as is so typical for Jesus, he answers this kind of challenge with another question. Jesus answers the question with a question, What is written in the law? How do you read it? The man answers the question correctly, the summary of the law The summary of really what is in all of the Old Testament law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus affirms that this is the correct answer. That it is the summary of the law. This expert in the law has it correct. But then it says in verse 29, now we see something else going on in the heart of this expert in the law. That he wants to justify himself. And it's worth noting that religion without grace will always have to try to justify itself. Because it doesn't, it's not looking to a gracious, loving God to justify it. It has to find a way to justify its own behavior, its own assumptions. And there's all kinds of tricky ways that religion without grace does this. Um often it has to do with comparison. It's it's not comparing ourselves to the perfect holiness of God. It's comparing ourselves to the person who is less holy than us. And as long as we're better than the next person, we feel like we're justified. So this is why this expert in the law asks the question, well, who is my neighbor? Because deep down inside, he knows that he hasn't fulfilled this command of the law to love your neighbor as yourself, but he's hoping that he can find some kind of loophole so that he can at least justify where he's failed. At least he's better than the next person. or At least he can come up with some definition of holiness that it just so happens that he meets, even if the next person doesn't meet it. He wants to know if there's limits to the command. And of course, Jesus' answer here, which is this story, this parable, that tells us what the kingdom of God is like, is a story that just removes his and our excuses. He tells this story about a man who one day is going from Jerusalem to Jericho, gets attacked by robbers, was a common threat in the time in which this was written, gets attacked by robbers, gets beat within an inch of his life, is is left there, unable to help himself, and then a priest and a Levite happen to come by. Notice Jesus' words there, happen to come by. It's a moment of divine mercy. God has ordained this, that these two men are going by the road. These two, it just so happens to be religious men. One is a priest, maybe on his way to do his duties in the temple. The other is a Levite, which is the lineage that makes up the priests. These are people who are close to the things of God, close to the songs of God, close to the worship of God, close to the understanding of God, And yet so far from the heart of God and what he wants to do in this situation. And so they pass by. Why? Well, we're left to use our imaginations. Like, why did they pass by? Maybe they just didn't want to be bothered. Or maybe they actually had a religious justification. Maybe they had to get to their duties at the temple. They had to get to church. So they didn't have time, right, to help this man, it was on the side of the road. It makes me think, because these are two people that the hearers of this story, a Levite and a priest, would, they'd be thought of as holy, as close to the things of God. It makes me think that if being close to the things of God, if being holy, if being religious, somehow makes us less merciful, then maybe we've missed it. Maybe we've been near the things of God, but somehow we missed God. Maybe we've been near to the worship of God, but somehow we missed him entirely. We missed what he's doing on the side of this road. We're missing the opportunity that he's giving us. And of course, just some of the ethical teaching that Jesus is giving here from the Good Samaritan, which I'm sure you're familiar with, is that we are never allowed to ask if it's the right thing to do to help someone. Now, Christians can debate about how to help someone. I live in a community with a ton of needs. And I can tell you, the community of people I work with, we don't always agree on the best way to help the people that we're serving. But one thing we do know is that according to the teaching of Jesus, we must help. I remember one time I was at a university and I was hearing a debate between two people, two Christian leaders, if I said their names, you would recognize their names, who were talking about uh, the lack of um, adequate health care that people living in poverty often experience. In my community, this is a real thing. I could share with you stories that have names and faces of people who just didn't have enough access to health care or dental care. And these two individuals could not have disagreed more on how to help Um, They had different viewpoints on public policy. They had different viewpoints on how ministries should spend their money. They had different viewpoints on the methods of ministry. But these two men were participating in this, this conversation, almost this debate, because both of them, who themselves lived in poor communities, at different times cried while they talked about their poor neighbors. See, it wasn't up for debate if we should help. But the question of how is something that Christians can rightly debate. At its very basic level, this is what the parable of the Good Samaritan teaches us, right? That we, we have to say yes to the person that's at the side of the road. Figuring out how to say yes, the best way to do it, all of that are things that we struggle with. But we have to say yes. But I'm going to tell you today that I don't think that ethical teaching is actually the main point of this parable. A good way to interpret Jesus' parables is to ask the question, what's the big point, the main point that he's making in this parable? I think often we focus on that ethical teaching, and I think it's a good thing to draw from this passage. But if you want to know the main thing that's taught in Jesus' parables, a lot of times it's good to pay attention to the thing in the parable that feels like a pebble in your shoe, that feels like, man, the more I think about this and the more I walk with this, it's just bothering my foot. Right? There's something in my shoe that's bothering me. So what is the pebble in this parable? Can you notice it? Can you identify it? If you think about it, can you can you identify the thing that doesn't make sense, the thing that might be most offensive to the people who are hearing this parable? Well, let me let you in on what I think it is. It's that Jesus makes the hero of this story a Samaritan. That the Samaritan is the hero. He's... So It's like sometimes we forget, the Samaritan in this story is not the man on the side of the road that needs help. The Samaritan is actually the one who gets it right, who stops, who takes care of this man, presumably a Jew, on the side of the road. Jesus makes this man, a Samaritan, the main character of the story. I think sometimes we miss how radical this is. You know, I just read a news report yesterday where someone was being decri- described as a Good Samaritan because they stopped and helped. There's a there's a parish across the river from me in the Ohio River Valley called Good Samaritan Parish. And there's a statue of the Good Samaritan in front of it. We, we think so well of the Good Samaritan. I think sometimes we miss how radical or even how offensive this would have been for Jesus to say this because some of you know this. The Samaritans were a people that Jews had nothing to do with, right? And there were reasons why. Uh, Some of it had to do with bad history between the Jews and the Samaritans that went back hundreds of years. At some point, these two groups of people had common ancestors, but then the Samaritans intermarried and adopted the customs of other groups of people who actually were considered enemies of Israel, And so for hundreds of years, there had been this bad feeling. Out of those ethnic and cultural and racial differences um, came all kinds of religious customs that the Jews and the Samaritans really disagreed with. If you read the New Testament, then you know that the Samaritans had their own temple. They didn't believe that Jerusalem should be the place where the temple was. So they had their own place of worship with its own customs. If you dig even deeper beyond that, the Samaritans and the Jews didn't even agree On what was scripture and what wasn't scripture. The Samaritans did not accept as scripture most of the Old Testament. Which the Jews received as scripture. And they even had some additional texts that they added in. They believed some things that the Jews considered to be heresy. And this is who Jesus makes. The main character, the good character, the hero... Of the story. I think for us to really enter into like the visceral feeling of this. Like what Jesus is doing to his audience. Because we're so familiar with this. I think what we would have to do. And maybe you can just do this this with me here in a moment. We would have to imagine the caricature of someone in our current cultural context. Who we believe is wrong in their lifestyle. Wrong in their belief. Maybe even a corrupting influence on the church or corrupting influence in the culture, in the nation. Whoever that caricature is for you, maybe you've never even met this kind of person, but you see them as an enemy of Christianity, as an enemy of what we stand for, as an enemy. Like that person, let them come to your mind and I would say you haven't landed on the right person if inside you don't feel some kind of revulsion for them right? And once you can think of that kind of person, that's like, man, that person is a corrupting influence on the church and on the nation. Once you can think of that kind of person, whatever they are, it's like Jesus took that person and made them the hero of the story. It's like Jesus took that enemy and said, this is the person who did what's right. That's the pebble in the shoe that's why it's offensive for his hearers to listen to this because he didn't make a good Jewish person the hero of the story. He made a Samaritan. It makes me think this is actually Jesus' main point. And it makes me at least ask the question, hopefully you ask the question, why would Jesus choose a Samaritan to be the hero of the story? Um. I'll just suggest two reasons to you and you may be able to come up with more but there's two that I thought of. Uh, One is I think Jesus is making the point to this expert in the law that there is more to the kingdom of God than only right belief. Now, hear what I'm saying. I'm I'm not suggesting that life in the kingdom is less than right belief. I think you would agree with me that in no place in the New Testament, including here, is Jesus endorsing the heresy of the Samaritans. He doesn't repeat their teaching. He doesn't uh, give it his stamp of approval. You and I, as Bible-believing Christians, have not inherited from the Samaritans their theology, right? Right? Jesus is not endorsing what's wrong about this person. And we know from the New Testament that right doctrine, right belief is important. It's just that Jesus is talking to an expert in the law who knows the doctrine. He's talking to an expert in the law who does believe the right thing. His statement of faith is correct. He's answering the theological questions correctly. When he sits in Bible studies, he knows this book. And yet he's missing something and Jesus picks a Samaritan to be the main character of this story just to draw a contrast, to put into bold relief a point here. And it's that life in the kingdom is not just about believing the right things, checking off a doctrinal checklist. Life in the kingdom is also about doing the right thing. Life in the kingdom is also about stopping When someone is in a ditch on the side of the road and instead of saying, uh, thinking of all the reasons about how we shouldn't help and hiding behind those reasons, life in the kingdom just stops and helps and figures it out. Because life in the kingdom recognizes that that person's created in the image of God. Life in the kingdom recognizes that this is what God is doing on that road. That he's placing people to help this person. Life in the kingdom is not just about believing the right things in the right order and being able to regurgitate them. It's also about doing the right things. And by making a Samaritan the lead character of the story, Jesus is making that point. It's, it's in bold relief. It's sticking out. And secondly, I think Jesus also does this because there's something that shows up in Jesus' teaching and the parables over and over again. That the kingdom of God, that future reality that's breaking in on the present, that's making wrong right and bringing what's disordered into order and and bringing the chaotic things into submission to God's will, that this kingdom that is breaking in is often at work in the most unusual places. That we can find evidence of it breaking in in the places that make us uncomfortable. Places where Samaritans hang out. That God might already be at work there, that he might already be doing something, that he might already be at work in the places and among the people that we think are so far from God, that have nothing to do with the things of God. I could stand here today, and just as the church planning multiplication director of this district, tell you story after story after story of how we are discovering that the kingdom of God is already at work in inner city neighborhoods. How the kingdom of God is already at work among Muslim people. How the kingdom of God is already at work among all kinds of people who we would think are far from God, but it turns out that this is what God is doing on the earth. And we're not bringing the kingdom so much as we are learning to recognize the smell of the kingdom where it's already at work in our neighborhoods and joining God in what he's doing there. So I think Jesus makes this Samaritan the main hero, the main character of the story to bring these things into focus for us. That there's something about the kingdom of God that is action. And there's something about the kingdom of God that is expected. And if we really want to reflect on what the kingdom of God is like, we don't just reflect on this story about a Samaritan who stopped and helped someone else that takes away our excuses when we don't want to help the next person. What we do is we look at how Jesus came and how he didn't embrace any excuses in helping us. How we were the ones on the side of the road. How we were the ones left to die. And how Jesus didn't hide behind some intellectual excuses. How he didn't hide behind just some a statement of faith so that he didn't have to help, some religious duty so that he didn't have to help us. He laid everything aside. It's like it says elsewhere in the New Testament that this love is not just a love of words, but of action and truth. Jesus came and died for us. He didn't just say he loved us. He didn't just do a religious ritual. He died for us. Our excuses are taken away. Because he didn't let any excuses get in the way. Amen? I'm just going to end here in these last few moments with a story where this just came to life for me. I was preaching a message like this once at Toccoa Falls College. Um, I graduated from there. Um, for my undergrad degree, it's one of our alliance schools. If you're, any TFC graduates here by any chance, no, you must all be NIAC people or something. I don't know. Um, it's great, <laughs> um, but uh, I went to Falls College. I was back once preaching on a message like this, and um, I live in a largely African American community, and because of that, the uh, the stories and the heroes of the civil rights movement are just meaningful for me and my family. And so I have some friends in Atlanta, and uh, sometimes when I go visit to I'll stop in Atlanta and um, spend some time in prayer there. And one of the places I'll go is where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King are buried. Um, if you've never been there, it's a beautiful place next to the church where Dr. King pastored, and um, there's some beautiful gardens around there. And and one day, I was down there, and a storm actually blew through the south and delayed my speaking engagement at the college. They had to cancel classes for a day because there was some flooding on campus. And so I had an extra day, and so I decided I'd go to Atlanta and spend some time in prayer at this, this spot where I like to pray. And because of the storm, the city had been shut down too, the city of Atlanta. And so I arrive at this historic spot, where the National Park Service helps maintain some things. And I really was the only one in sight. I mean, it was kind of amazing. I'm at this historic site. I'm walking around praying. And I can tell you at at the time, I was still the lead pastor of the Gospel Tabernacle. And just as the pastor of that church, there were some really heavy things on my heart. Um, In the years before, we had made some pretty hard turns to stop passing by people in our neighborhoods who were in need. We started to spend time in neighborhoods and even live in neighborhoods that our church had for many decades ignored, but were right near us. Um, People were starting to show up at our church uh, that we wouldn't have thought we had anything to do with, but they were starting to come around us and be our friends. And this was causing some controversy at the church, to be honest. Um, there were some people my, I told you my great grandparents went to that church, so these were not people I considered enemies. I actually considered them to be dear friends. but there were some people who were finding all of this to be very difficult. Um, some of those changes as we got on mission with Jesus looked like some particular things, for instance, the women of our church really started to show up to be on mission with Jesus. They got mobilized in a way that they hadn 't before and and some people found that controversial. They weren't used to that and it kind of unsettled them. Um, Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. In my experience, when we get on mission with Jesus, we experience new levels of power, that the Holy Spirit is there to empower us. And there was kind of a fresh wind of the Spirit blowing through our church and some people found that controversial. And then we were just spending times in neighborhoods and around people that quite frankly, we were uncomfortable being around. And some people found that controversial. And in those years, there was kind of a slow trickle from our church. The church sustained all those years, but people who I loved dearly were leaving. And I was feeling the heaviness of it. I wasn't rejoicing in this. I felt it in a heavy way. And so I'm in Atlanta praying over this. And I, I had rounded the corner of a building, and I remember saying, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. I think I said it out loud because I was talking out loud because I I probably looked crazy, but I was the only one there, you know. And I walked around and said, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And I come around, and I see the first person during my whole prayer time there. It's a woman who I could tell was a homeless woman. And she's on the sidewalk in front of me walking forward. And I'm about to preach on the Good Samaritan the next day at Toccoa Falls College. And you know the first thing that came into my mind was... I'm going to go to the other side of the street, because I'm praying, and I don't want to be interrupted by this homeless person. And the Lord was just like, are you kidding me, right? You're preaching on the Good Samaritan, right? Um, I happen to have seven dollars in cash in my pocket. It was a five and two ones and I felt like it's all subjective, but I felt the Lord just saying like give her the money in your pocket. So I walk up to her, I say, "Hey, what's your name?" She tells me her name is Mary. She's holding a rose because there's a rose garden there on the grounds, and the night before the storm had blown this rose down, and she's holding this rose and she asks if I will admire it with her. And so I smell it, she smells, she says, "Isn't it beautiful?" And she says, I never would have picked this rose. She said, but it fell on the ground, and I felt like, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to, you know, hold it. And, um, and I, I said, well, here, I have some money in my pocket. I handed her a five, and not the twos for some reason. And I kind of felt the Lord go, <clears throat> you know, like the full amount <laughs> in your pocket. And so I pulled out the other twos then and gave it to her. And then she says, thank you so much. She says, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm praying. She closed her eyes and said, wow, this is such a beautiful place to pray. And then she opened her eyes. As God is my witness, this is what happened. She looked at me and she said, it sounds like you're doubting some of the decisions you've made. She said, but you are doing exactly what you need to be doing. And keep doing it. Right? And then she says, I want you to have this rose. So I had given her money. She had given me a rose. And it was like in this unexpected person, in an unexpected place, it was like God was saying, listen, I think that number seven was actually significant. I don't look into every detail like this, but it was $7 in my pocket. I felt like the Lord said, as you give everything you have, as a leader and as a church, to the people who are in ditches, on the side of the road, there will be a blessing that comes back to you. That rose. It may not be what you gave up, but there will be a blessing that comes back. And it was like I felt the Lord saying, I'm showing you guys where I'm at. Join me in that place. I didn't make any excuses to come get you. So don't make any excuses in going to be with the people that I'm with. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful that you're at work in unexpected places. We so love that you didn't make excuses to come rescue us. And Lord, we confess that, like this expert in the law, we can be people who have all the right answers, who can say all the right things, but can still be so far from your heart. God, we pray that you would draw us into the love of God in a way that makes us available for people and neighborhoods that have been left behind in a ditch. Lord, I believe that God is waiting, that you are waiting for churches that will say, Lord, send us the people nobody else wants. God, if you want FAC to be that kind of church, then would you stir that kind of faith up in this body to say, send us the people nobody else wants. And God, we will come home rejoicing, seeing how you're at work in some of the most difficult places and difficult people in our community. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.